You're listening to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network. All right, welcome back to the Riverwise Podcast, where we explore and discuss so much of what's going on in and around social justice of the Detroit area, Michigan, and the nation and world beyond. Today, we have a Detroit native son that has stretched out in the academic world and to a neighboring state of ours of Illinois, and Illinois State University, but he has a book, and this book covers so much of what we've been exploring and talking about, but now we have some studies and also some context from someone that has led some studies on suspensions and punishment and violence inside of schools. And really, is there a failure of public safety inside of school environments? So we welcome to the Riverwise podcast, Dr. Charles Bell. Dr. Charles Bell, how are you today? Doing great. How about yourself? Oh, man, everything is good. Everything is good. And it's also great to know. And I want to give a shout out to the Source Booksellers and Allison over there uh, made this happen and connected us uh, with uh, something that's heavy. Uh, you, you wrote a book and this book actually explores uh, from what you've shared before the interview a lot of Metro Detroit and Michigan schools to find out really the perspectives, the ideas, the consequences, uh, the physiological and psychological uh, background of what happens to students that are labeled as quote unquote bad kids when this punishment takes place. Uh, you know, without any further to do, please give a brief introduction of why you wrote the book Suspended Punishment, Violence and the Failure of School Safety. Thank you so much. And uh, it's a pleasure to be on the show. And again, shout out to Sourcebook Sellers. Um, thank you for everything you've done for me and the book and for Detroit. And just glad to be here today. Um, one of the reasons that I wrote the book is uh, I can remember being in school and just seeing you know, lots of white students in college. And I just started really wondering, like, where are all my peers? You know, what are some of the barriers that are keeping black children from matriculating out of high school and enrolling in college? And then I stumbled up, I began reading to understand this social problem. And I stumbled upon this term, the school to prison pipeline. And I can just remember sitting down and just remembering how a lot of my friends had gotten suspended and they never came back to school or they came back to school after a long suspension, didn't really understand what was going on in the class and ended up, you know, dropping out or they got suspensions for things that they really, really didn't even do. And I really realized that, aha, you know, this is it. This is a serious problem and nobody is really talking about this in Michigan or in the Detroit area. So I started connecting the dots and I did some research on this and I saw a map of the United States and on and where they were doing school to prison pipeline research. There's a map and if you can form a picture of the United States, they had a dot in Los Angeles. There's research on the school to prison pipeline there. They went to Chicago. There's research on the school to prison pipeline there. They skipped Detroit and went straight to New York. And I looked at that map and I said, that's a problem because children right here in Detroit are being suspended. They are being suspended for various reasons. It is having a significant impact on our community. And we need to know why 
we need the we need the students and parents' voices to be elevated. We need to know what is going on in our schools. So I took it up on myself. You know, W.B. Du Bois says, be the change that you want to see in the world. So I went out there and I conducted my own research and I conducted a study. And the first study that I conducted um, was to understand how black students and parents view school suspensions and their impact on students' grades, parents' employment, their friendships, and then understanding how they viewed school safety measures like metal detectors, law enforcement officers and armed guards. And I started in Detroit in Southfield and I interviewed at that time, 30 parents and 30 students. Mm -hmm. And I see that uh, along with that throughout this book, you had 160, 160 different interviews uh, of uh, black students in high schools and their parents and also the teachers uh, in what the what the act of suspension does to the to the psychology, which kind of makes me step back. Uh, what was your high school journey? I know you're DPS, but uh, please share with the listeners uh, what yes. your high school journey was and what do you remember about uh, public safety in schools in your adolescence? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And I actually include a lot of my experiences in the book to really help school officials understand some of the trauma that students are experiencing. And the fact that a lot of these kids really don't have, really don't understand that this is trauma or or that they may be reacting to a certain um, experience in their community. So I I grew up on the north end of Detroit, um, about two miles north of Wayne State University. And there were lots of shootings in my neighborhood and it was tough. And it was really tough for me to to picture success. And then I went to Denby High School, I moved deep east. And I think that was my first experience really just seeing uh, a lack of books, lots of security, and really just the criminalization of black children um, on display. I mean, it was very uh, clear to me that if you want children to be successful, you put books, you put new equipment, you put new resources in the school. But if you don't want them to be successful, you remove all of those things and you watch them suffer. And I really was, uh, at, at that time as a child, I really didn't have the understanding of that I have now of why those books and why those resources are missing. I think it's really easy to blame the school. It's really easy to say that, oh, this is Denby High School's fault. When in actuality, it's a much bigger issue. It's a political sort of violence that's been introduced into our community. So that was my trajectory. I I went to Denby High School. I graduated in 2004 um, and I got a a scholarship to go to Wayne State University. And I went to Wayne State and I majored in psychology. And I had, I worked two jobs. I was, it was on my own, it was tough. And I, I ended up, um, I ended up graduating four years. I mean, it, it was tough, but I made it out. And I was really just underst- trying to figure out what to do next. And I, I figured as long as, you know, they paid for it, I keep going to school. 
and, and, and exploring this social problem. So I ended up getting my master's degree in school psychology from Michigan State. And I found that school psychology, while it was very interesting, and I got some excellent training on understanding children, I felt like the field was not broad enough for me to understand like neighborhood violence, community violence, and then social policy and how all of those things play a role in public schooling and children's lives. So then I took a step back and I really I found sociology and sociology was broad enough where I could bring in lots of my own thinking on political violence and um, structural violence and, and other sort of concepts that you wouldn't normally see in that discipline. And really just understanding how children see the world and then how the world reacts to children. And here I am today as a criminal justice professor. So that that really uh, definitely gives you a different insight when we think of a school like Denby, for those unaware, on uh, Detroit's east side. And you even shouted it out. I, th- I think of Denby. I think of Finney or what now is East English Village. Um, uh-huh. These schools are staples of um, of what. I've come to believe are labeled as quote unquote bad schools. DPS, Mm -hmm. uh, I believe in the high school realm has two schools or three, maybe four labeled as good schools. And that's Cass Mm -hmm. Tech, Renaissance, uh, DSA, and also King's programs in math and science and technology. But then you have schools like my alma mater, Northwestern High School and Denby and, and Finney and even Central that are maybe be labeled as like bad schools and they'll get interesting resources. Uh, I had one of the unique experiences of starting like a lot of people do, starting at King in the engineering, the technology program and ending at Northwestern. So just seeing the difference in the uh, of the culture between both schools was very eye-opening. Along with it being eye-opening, I I think that it was unique to what was more normalized just due to the amount of what was available. Uh, When we think of suspension and, and what that represents, you know, being a kid that was suspended, it, it it kind of it kind of became just like a, a knee jerk response, I think, in a lot of ways, especially once a child is labeled as a bad kid, uh, knowing that you have school psychology uh, background and you studied this. What did you come to find that most of the parents were thinking about in reference to their child being suspended? Yeah, and that's a really great question. And and even as a suspended child, I've been suspended before as well. And I think it was just, uh, again, like you said, a knee-jerk reaction. But in terms of what the parents were saying, I think a lot of the parents, and it really just depended on the reason the child was being suspended. And what I found is a range of three different reasons. So many of these children were being suspended because their behavior was being misinterpreted by the school official. They're being suspended for a very minor infraction that really doesn't warrant a school suspension, or they're being suspended for fighting and defending themselves. And I can give you the full range. And let's start with fighting because I know that one always attracts a lot of attention. So parents, a lot of these parents 
were graduates of the schools that they sent their children to. So they had very similar experiences in these schools. So they're walking into schools with metal detectors, guards, law enforcement officers, and those individuals are there at the door, patting students down, searching their bags. And a lot of these students, they either recognize that this is a normal practice or they felt criminalized. But the problem came into play when the student is being attacked and then they look around, they don't see a guard. They don't see a law enforcement officer. They're telling their parents that, hey, I'm fighting in school because I was attacked and nobody broke it up. Nobody de-escalated this altercation. So if I don't fight back, then I'm gonna be hurt. And the parents are saying, I understand that because I was in that same situation. So they're telling their children that if the school does not protect you, then you have an obligation to protect yourself. And then the parents are defending their child against the school when they issue the suspensions. A lot of parents do not feel that their child who is defending themselves should be suspended just like the person who instigated the attack is suspended. So that's one sort of issue that parents are bringing to the table. Another issue is the misinterpretation of students' behavior. So I had a parent, his daughter was leaving school. She turned around, she gave a boy a hug. And because of that hug, she got suspended for five days. The parent was called, he's at work, he's coming, leaving work to come to the school. He's missing out on hours at work. And they told him that his daughter is being suspended for five days because she gave a boy a hug. So the suspension not only cost her you know, several sort of grade levels in her academic performance, but he's missing out on income. So parents are frustrated because of this. Why are you calling a parent because their daughter just gave a guy a hug at school that was innocent? These are children. Yet when you're a black girl, school officials are sexualizing these girls. They they look at black women and they automatically make these stereotype, stereotypical assumptions that black girls are promiscuous and sexualized. And they misinterpret black girls' behavior and then issue these suspensions. So that's another thing that frustrates parents. And then when black children are sort of engaged in these minor infractions, a dress code violation, for example, and I've had students who had young boys, for example, and boys grow pretty fast when they're in high school. I had a parent say that, hey, I'm a single mom. I bought uniform pants or a uniform shirt, for example, and now he's grown out of all these shirts. So I'm sending him to school in the shirts that he has. The shirt may not be white, as the dress code says, but he has a clean shirt. He's here to learn. Why are you sending my child home when I just sent him to school ready to learn? Why does, his, why does the color of his shirt matter? And that's frustrating for a lot of parents. And this is definitely more inner city. But the cool thing about your book is you also went outside of just Detroit. You went into suburbs and even some of the rural communities. Uh, did you see any differences in speaking with the parents about their response to suspensions in those communities? And that's a really interesting question because, like I said before, I started just in Detroit and Southfield with 30 interviews with parents and 30 interviews with students. And to be honest, I had actually planned to stop there. However, what I found is that parents in Detroit and Southfield recognized that school suspensions were so harmful. You know, they're harming students' grades, jeopardizing parents' employment. A lot of these suspensions were illegal. 
a lot of these parents are just packing up and moving. So they're looking at a Farmington Hills or Warren School District, and they're saying that we know that they have more resources out there. Maybe it'll be a better environment for my child there. So they enroll their child in in Farmington Hills or Warren School District. And I had um, left to go to Illinois State in uh, July of 2018 when I concluded the study. And by September of 2018, I'm getting calls from those same parents, hey, you gotta come back here because it's worse in Farmington Hills. It's worse in Warren or Northfield. Uh, my child is being criminalized for their hair, their style of dress. And, and, it's, and what I've learned is that it's not the child's actions per se that are being criminalized, it's blackness that's being criminalized. It's everything about a black child, from the clothes they wear, from their hair, from the way they interact with their peers. It's all of it. And it really just led me, and it led parents to voice frustration. A lot of parents are just frustrated because I'm starting in Southfield, now I'm in Warren, uh, and then I moved to Farmington Hills, and it's the same thing. I'm packing up, I'm uprooting my family, and no matter where I move, I can't find a safe space for my children to learn. And I'm getting suspensions, 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 no matter where I go. So parents are frustrated in a the city. They're frustrated in the suburbs. doesn't matter where they go. They're met with suspensions. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, can relate from that perspective, just on the strength of, um, you know, being in the suburbs, and really many things in America as a black man that are labeled as like, that's safe and that's a good resource, I always think, is a dangerous place for me as a black man. But especially when I was younger, I mean, I look at some of the times and I started at African-centered schools as a child and then moved on to Detroit Public Schools as I grew older. But, you know, some of those times, debate team, I was a part of DECA. DECA is like a marketing group for high school students but it was always at those conferences and conventions I could only imagine what type of challenge were to come if um, you know if kids are doing kid things but it may lead to something dangerous I'm going to be the first one looked at that was always my perspective uh, to a point where like you say the blackness itself is being criminalized how do the students themselves internalize these these punishments. Yeah, and that's a great question as well. So, and I was really just, um, I was stunned to a certain degree and excited to interview them because a lot of times school officials assume that children don't understand what's going on. And many of these children, they understood it and they understood it very well. And they led, they told me that they felt that schools sort of resisted black children, that schools were anti-black institutions because no matter where they went, no matter what they did, they were being targeted for suspensions. And they just felt like schools did not want black children to attend. And when I really started thinking about that, you know, you're in a school, you're in a metal detectors, guards, nobody's coming to help you. Then they're talking about, we don't have books, we don't have resources. Uh, a lot of these kids said that they didn't have classrooms. They were just, you know, in the hall or in a gym. And, and they're really just talking about a sort of political violence. And it really just um, made me think about 
education before 1954, before schools were desegregated. You know, black children had poor resources given to them by the government or a lot of times schools that educated black children didn't get any sort of resources from the government uh, before 1954. And that's what led to separate and unequal outcomes. And there's a history in this country of um, poor treatment of black children and, and sort of inequality in public schools. So the fact that children today, you know, I was interviewing students between 2017 and 2000, uh, between 2017 and 2020. Uh Uh, So, yeah, considering the fact that they were seeing that and they were able to make sense of that Hmm. was impressive. That's deep. Yeah. My school's resisting me. They don't give us books. They don't give us resources. And I can see that this is a a history here. And it's like, wow. Mm -hmm. So being that the students are internalizing that, what, uh, you know, just the book itself, who who would you say is the audience for this book? Is is the parents? Are there school administrators? Is it uh, counselors, uh, child psychologists? Who's the audience for this book? So I actually wrote the book specifically, and I put this in the introduction to school officials. However, I tried my best here to make it a very broad audience because the solution to this problem, you need to bring everybody to the table. So while I directed the book to school officials, I wanted parents and students to see their voices represented in the book. So as a parent who's struggling with school suspensions, I wanted parents to say that, you know, you're not alone. And and one of the things I noticed as I was interviewing students and parents is they felt isolated, they felt alone, they felt like this is only happening to my child. Um, and, And connecting parents and letting them know that you're not crazy, this is exactly what's happening to black children nationally and letting them know that there's evidence to support this. And I want parents to read the book. And even though it's directed to school officials, they're going to read the book and they're going to see parents who are just like them going through the same things. And they're going to say, aha, yes, my thoughts and uh, fears are confirmed. I have evidence that this is happening. It's not just my child. It's not just me. This is a system issue. It's not my child. And I want parents and students to really see that. I want school officials to see what they're doing wrong. I want them to see that they're not following policy. They're violating students' rights. They're violating the law. Yeah. I want policymakers to see that when they write these laws, school officials aren't following them. And they need to do a better job of monitoring compliance with the laws that they write. So, so with it, as we think of solutions to what this could be, because uh, it unpacks really deep uh, some of Homeland Security's money that comes because Detroit is a bordering state to uh, Canada. Some of that money goes to DPS. You know, uh, when you look at the coffers of what's going on, gang squad contracts, uh, the militarization of uh, school security. And and it's become a huge business. I mean, I look at that uh, prison you know, the school to prison pipeline. And, you know, when I think of school, especially, you know, as a as a black kid, uh, a black man, I always thought of it as a black boy that this ain't for me. 
because all of my all of my natural uh, my natural responses to life. I have so many questions. Why are we doing this? Like, you know, almost like I led with that with every lesson for any one of my classes, you know, and that mm-hmm. naturally kind of put me on a list with most teachers is here we go. This is one of the bad ones. You know, like, mm-hmm. what will this do? You know what I'm saying? What will this do for my future? Like, it, this, this won't do anything for me. Now, there were certain teachers that did stand out. And, you know, let me use Source Magazine or Slam Magazine for English. Like, kind of met me where I was and then kind of took me under. But it was also just a natural defiance, too, of, you know, this system. You know, I, the school was the first place I was told, no, I can't do this. You know, mm-hmm. up to that, you know, me and my mom, me and my dad, it was never, no, I can't do this. It was always like, okay, this is a better way. And then we'll get back to playing a little bit later, you know, but school was the first place where I even faced true punishment without context for why, you know? So yeah. I, I definitely was one of those students that always thought that. And then knowing so many of my friends that have, uh, that have sons, cause this is very prevalent. I think, um, Young black girls is is prevalent, but young black boys, uh, Jawaza Kinjufu and so many others have done so many studies that it's like, wow, you know what I mean? School just is a place where I didn't feel welcome and my natural inclination of getting up, getting active, moving around, questioning everything, you know, like I got to do at home with my father and my mother never was welcome. So being that this system is so strong and not culturally built, because that's my perspective, is culturally built more for white students uh, mm-hmm. and how they receive information and how they learn and everything, like most things in America. How can it adapt where instead of punishing what's different, it can embrace what's different and learn how to, you know, welcome learning in that dynamic? Yeah, and I think that what has to happen is a national sort of dialogue. I think um, we have to, I think America has to accept its history and what it's done to black people in education mm-hmm. and in all areas of life. I think that once we have a conversation and a dialogue about that, then we can move forward and chart up sort of uh, a place where education can be a very diverse and, and accepting environment of all students of all races and all colors. And I think that there's a resistance to doing that right now. We're, we're seeing a national debate on teaching race and teaching critical race theory and, you know, all kinds of uh, things about race. And that's going in the opposite direction. This is why a culture of punishment against black children is so um resilient and and difficult to undo because we America doesn't want to sort of accept its history. It doesn't want to, it it doesn't want other white children to understand what America has done to black children who are in their classes. So until we have that conversation and that debate, I think that there will be no sort of inequality in schools. We have to force a conversation nationally by electing officials who will speak for us or by running for office ourselves. I think a lot of times when we look at policy, we don't think that we are capable of cultivating it. And when we are, we're most affected by policy. And if we want change, sometimes we just have to do it ourselves. 
Okay, so what are some of the gems that people will get out of this? And I think mostly, you know, I know it's a broad audience, but I think for the parents, you know, what am I going to learn when when I read this book? I have a kid that does get suspended before I move to this seventh school district. You know what I'm saying? And, mm-hmm. you know, what what am I going to pull from this? What nuggets am I going to get? Yeah, and I think I think just the first one is just understanding, and a lot of parents are just like, it's my child. The school keeps telling the parent that it's your child. It's your child. Your child is doing this. Your child is bad. They want to label the child. They want to suspend the child. And I think the first thing is that, uh, hey, you don't even know my child. Have you asked questions about my child? Have you took some time to understand our circumstances or our goals, our dreams? Um my, my child's thoughts and you know, things like that. So I think that's the first thing that parents will see. Number two, I think, you know, trauma hmm. is it, so important in, 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 in a child's life. Some children are traumatized. You know, it's in, in light of this sort of COVID-19 pandemic, many children have lost relatives. I don't even think school officials have even thought of that. You know, Coming back to school in a context in which, hey, I might have just lost my dad. I may have just lost my mom. Or my parent may have lost their job. Um, and now I'm in school, and I know that we don't have food at home, or we don't have running water. We're having some difficulties here. And then you're suspending me for you know something ridiculous. I think a lot of times, yeah, you don't, the school doesn't take into consideration traumatic events in the student's life. Do you have a school social worker or a school psychologist at your school? Or is that school psychologist and social worker serving four or five schools across the district? No, that's inappropriate. Why are we putting more money into metal detectors, law enforcement, and armed guards than we're putting into social workers and psychologists? And if we put the money that we needed into social workers and psychologists, maybe we would not even need the law enforcement, armed guards, and metal detectors. Mm. So it's another point. Um, Other things are are that a lot of times parents, we don't know our rights. We, We think that when a child is being suspended, the school is always right, the child is always wrong. And a lot of these suspensions are illegal. And I, I point out that you can't suspend a kid in excess of 10 days without a hearing. That is a violation of their right. And even if the suspension is not up to 10 days, the parent is still entitled to be informed, either written or oral notice, uh, of the student's sort of uh, of the allegations, their rights, their right to attend the hearing, bring some sort of representation. And a lot of schools don't even do that. Hmm. So it's important for parents to know their rights. A lot of times, uh, and a good example of this is Michigan uh, passed school discipline reform laws in 2016, and they were implemented in the 2017 school year. When I asked parents, did they know about the school discipline reforms? Overwhelmingly, no. They hadn't heard about it. Nobody told them. And the school really had no incentive to tell parents because they were violating the laws. Wow. So there's just lots of things that parents are going to take from this book. And I think that it's going to empower parents. It's going to give them a voice and it will help ease their minds and help them understand that, you know, it's not my child. It's the system. And the system is stacked up against my child. 
Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was a wonderful interview. And uh, for people that want to know again, this is Professor Charles Bell of Illinois State University, but also the author of Suspended Punishment, Violence and Failure of School Safety. Charles is a native son of Detroit. And speaking of Detroit, if you're interested in this book, which you should be, you can pick it up at Source Booksellers, 4240. Cass Avenue. 4240 Cass Avenue. And you know that is the place where you're going to see Allison and more than likely you're going to see Janet smiling um, and uh, always taking care of all the information you need. It's right in Detroit, 48201, not far from Wayne State University, but 4240 Cass Avenue. You can pick up this book. The book is Suspended Punishment or Suspended Punishment, Violence and Failure of School Safety. Uh, Would you like to leave any information? information if people would like to contact you have any interest in connecting with you uh-huh. yes uh, you can reach me drcharlesbell.com I have a website set up with discussion questions for the book so I would encourage you to have some reading groups with parents who are going through the same things uh, you can work through some of those questions you can challenge school officials take those discussion questions and the book to your school have mm-hmm. a meeting at the school with, with school officials and work through those discussion questions and really just have a conversation about school suspensions. I look at the book, not as just a book that you would read. I look at it as as a conversation starter. And hopefully we can have a national conversation on how school suspensions impact black children and collectively do something different. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you.